The Secrets of Technology is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Technology. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Technology, where we discuss the technology news that's important to you from a uniquely Catholic point of view. Joining me today on the panel are Jack Barazzini. Hey, Jack. Hey, Dom. And Thomas Enerho. Hey, Thomas. Hey, Dom. Uh, folks, I want to tell you about another show on the StarQuest Network you are sure to enjoy called Let's Science. You can find that wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com science. That's a natural fit for our our show. If you like Secrets of Tech, you will enjoy it. It's uh, <laughs> about 20 minutes long to half hour at the most. Uh, they cover one interesting scientific topic usually each time, uh, and it's a lot of fun. Carolyn does a great job, and they have Australian accents, so that makes it even better. So uh, let's talk about our topics for tonight. Our first uh, segment, we want to talk about free and open source software. And I've got the two guys perfect for this here tonight. I've saved this topic for you guys because I, I know that this is something near and dear to both of you. Uh, and so we're going to talk about uh, free software, open source software, our favorite stuff, things we can recommend in various categories for Linux, for Windows, for Mac. It's a, it, it's We got all the bases covered. Uh, so but first, we should start with what is open source software? Like, it, because we talk about free software, open source software, what is open source software when we say when we use that that term? So open source software, in in my opinion, and this is this is actually a debated topic. So this is not <laughs> like a settled uh, issue, <laughs> even amongst the community of people that's really uh, into open source uh, stuff. Uh, open source, in my opinion, is software that is accessible at the level that I can do something to modify it if I want to. So if I have some something that I need done in the software, there's a community that I can go and talk to uh, to ask for help getting that done. If I can write code myself, I can get involved in writing the code for it. And, and that to me is what it means to have open source, that it's not privatized to the point that, you know, if I wanted to have for example, Adobe's the one I always like to pick on, right? So uh, if I wanted to fix something inside of Adobe, I have to go to Adobe and likely pay for the right to even start like, suggesting something to them that should be fixed. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good that's a good definition. And in general, but not always, open source software t is non-commercial or free anyway. Correct. It, it, there's, it there's, it's a mixed bag there, actually. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's there's a lot of room to that. Um, I'm not going to talk about any like in our list tonight. I don't think it's I don't think it's as relevant to talk about business level open source software. Um, but there's a ton of business level open source software that drives everything that's going on, and it's open source in the sense that it is available. The code is available, but you pay to use it at a corporate level mm -hmm. so at once you get into the enterprise level and you you want a dedicated support person uh that knows the software really well that knows the code really well you pay the the group that's maintaining it to have that or and sometimes you even dedicate a resource from your team to that uh to that open source project so that person becomes uh a a manager for like a messaging service that you have inside of your corporation and they they 
contribute to the code for that particular open source project. Okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, our goal, our our goal tonight is to talk almost all the software we talk, we talk about will be open source, but not all of it. Some of it is not open source. It is proprietary. You know, the programmer, it's, it's a single programmer who's working on it and they haven't released the code or whatever. Uh, but all of it is fr- is going to be free. I'm pretty sure, and, and you can correct me if, if there are ones that aren't there, but I'm pretty sure that all of it is generally free to the, for personal and nonprofit, you know, religious and educational mm-hmm. use, that sort of stuff. And and often at the, no, even for non-corporate, so for like, small business it would probably, it's usually okay for a lot of these things uh so mm. our aim here is to talk about free mostly non-commercial software i think that's the idea um and much mm. of it is open source um and so what the old phrase is free as in beer and free as in speech so free beer <laughs> is beer that is given to you for free free speech is just it's conceptually free it's conceptually free of other mm. encumberments that sort of thing so I think I'm on target with that. So, um, yeah. yeah. All right. So let's let's just get started talking about some of the you know leave the philosophy behind and talk about some of the the actual software. Um, and I want to kind of start with talking about some of the cross platform software, the stuff that works. Um, when we say cross platform, we usually mean it works on Intel, Windows type PCs, Linux operating system and mac uh usually all three sometimes two of those two of the three but it usually works on more than one and uh so one i want to highlight that i've talked about before i just mentioned it briefly is like for example homebridge homebridge is software that will run on several different platforms i have it running on a raspberry pi which is a Linux computer, a very small, inexpensive Linux computer. And it's a ho- smart home hub uh, software that r- runs plugins that control various pieces of a smart home. Um, and, and so that is an example of, of uh, open source of it's open source. So it's, it's a communal programming project. It's also free to use. Um, there are commercial products that are similar that are out there. Like uh pretty sure home assistant is a, well, I, I shouldn't talk about it until I've l- looked at it, but there are other commercial products out there that do similar things, but this is free, which means in, in one sense, there's a little bit of a learning curve. It's not as simple to use, perhaps, as maybe a polished commercial product, but on the other hand, there are polished, polished quote-unquote, pol- commercial products that are not easy to use either, so um, that's that's not uh, neither here nor there. Um, so the, there, it depends on, on how much work you want you want to put in it personally versus spending time on the phone with customer service. Right? Ex- <laughs> right. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so that's just like one. So let's talk about like some uh, that are say in the uh, productivity office type space. Like if you you know we all know about Microsoft Office, but what are what are some other uh, ver- options that people might have if they want to go for something that's free and open source? One that I like a lot is a uh, LibreOffice. Yeah, um, it's. It's got all the typical things that you'd see in an office suite. Um, I believe it's a branch off of OpenOffice. They used to be the same project, and then LibreOffice branched off it several years ago. Um, and as they as that fork happened, I feel like LibreOffice has really fixed a lot of the issues that I had with OpenOffice. Um, but it's it's really good. It's got a word processor. You can do uh, spreadsheets. Uh, it's got a basically a PowerPoint uh, replacement. And you can open any of the files that you'd open with uh, Microsoft Office. Like it's com- cross compatible. Mm-hmm. Um, and unless 
my attitude at this point with Office productivity software is unless you're in a corporate environment, you really don't need to use Microsoft Office. Mm-mm. Right. Yeah. And, and I would honestly say unless unless you're like on Office 365 or uh, or a Google environment, there's really no reason to have a professional a, a home version of a professional office right. software, honestly. <laughs> right. If you're just, yeah, unless you're using something for a, uh, a, a company environment, a work environment, like if you just need something that runs at home on your PC, there's no point, you know, your PC, your Mac or Linux, uh, there's no point paying for office or paying, you know, um, mm-hmm. I mean, Google, I mean, the Google sheets, Google docs, I mean, that's sort of free, uh, at a certain level, but a lot of people are paying for that just in order to get past all of the, mm-hmm. uh, the, 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 the limitations that they impose. So having something like uh Libre office, open office, and then um, open office is that, is that part of Apache, I guess is uh which is interesting. Apache is the, um, they make a lot of the web server software out there. Um, mm-hmm. They were the big one for a long time. I don't know if they still are. Mm-hmm. I think that's been, changing a little bit but um a lot of the internet runs on apache web servers uh so they must have taken in-house i i, I missed that <laughs> but they must have taken open office in-house for them uh so it's kind of interesting i think it's one of those things when you get a bunch of nerd to, nerds together and they're like why are we paying for this when we could just write it <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> right exactly <laughs> And then you get the branches. You get you get like a, a team that's like, no, I actually I don't like working on the, the the networking stuff. I really want to just focus on this office thing. And that's where you end up with like you know LibreOffice branching off and doing their own mm. thing. And that's that's in, in my opinion, that's the best part of the open source environment where it's like it's a bunch of guys get together, they're doing stuff, and then you get this one group that's really passionate about this one tiny little stupid thing that they love. And they make a whole project out of it. And that's that's what they dedicate their next, you know, all of the free time that they have to code. That's what they dedicate it to is is working on that thing. Right. It's a it's a passion project as opposed to mm-hmm. just, just something I do to earn earn my paycheck. Exactly. Right. Something else that's really good about um, I was thinking specifically for office productivity suites, but this just goes for uh, open software in general is pretty much everything now is moving towards a subscription model like. Mm-hmm. You can still buy Microsoft Office as a one-time download, but you have to click through like four different pages and it's a huge hassle. Mm-hmm. And even then you cannot, and I just found this out recently, um, you cannot just go buy the software off the shelf and install it, put in your code and you're good to go. You have to have a Microsoft account and you have to keep it logged in because if you log mm-hmm. out, it's going to kick you out of the software. And with a, mm-hmm. like LibreOffice or a OpenOffice, that's not a problem. You just install it and you're good to go. Yeah, that's a constant issue for me because I have Microsoft Office and I have the apps on my iPad and I'm constantly having, I, I need, I'm trying to get something done. I open up Excel on my iPad and it wants me to log in again. I'm like, I logged in. How many times do I have to log mm-hmm. in for you to stay mm-hmm. logged in? Yeah, those, <laughs> those frustrations. Yeah. So I've got one more in this arena too uh, huh? of the of just the desktop publishing things. I did the church bulletin at our church for a little while, and um, I didn't want to pay for the Adobe uh, InDesign, which is the you know kind of industry standard for um, 
layouts and, and design work. Uh, Scribus is an open source desktop publishing software that does all of that stuff. So if you have worked with InDesign in the past, if you've ever laid out like a yearbook digitally or uh, a newspaper, a newsletter, or if you've ever been at that point where you just want to slam your head into the desk because uh, you put that picture in Word and it threw everything <laughs> off, this is the program for you. <laughs> Go for Scribus, uh, free open source uh, desktop publishing software. And uh, do you know if it's compatible with uh, Microsoft Publishing Docs, either publisher, Microsoft Publisher? Because that was one of the things that drove me nuts was so many church bull. When I worked on the church bulletin, so many church bulletin companies, they want you to use Microsoft Publisher, assuming that you're on a PC because there's no Microsoft Publisher for Mac. And so Mm -hmm. I ended up like working with InDesign and outputting, having to jump through hoops to get it into a format that they could use. so if the, if I don't this, remember we yeah. we got lucky with our publisher because they just they just wanted PDFs like that was what that was the output that they wanted so it was really nice I could just output the PDF but I nice. I think I remember Scribus being able to output pretty much any kind of file format you wanted you wanted it to wow it will run on OS two warp four wow it's <laughs> like it took a time machine back in time that's amazing uh, so. You know, that's good. I mean, it's great. It's and, and that's the other thing I didn't mention is like for like churches and schools where budget is always an issue. These sorts mm-hmm. of things. Free is good. <laughs> yeah. free, you don't have to pay the, these huge prices for Ad- the Adobe Creative Cloud and the Microsoft Office. So um, it's good to see that that's something that that a lot of churches could use. And a big advantage, too, is like if you want uh, tutorials for this kind of stuff, you can go online and you go to YouTube and find a tutorial for how to use this thing so that you can mm-hmm. learn yes. it right there. Exactly. So the, another category is media, media consumption, media production. Uh, there is one piece of software that I recommend for everyone. It's like the, it is the, the toolbox for playing video files. It'll play nearly any video file you throw at it called VLC or Video LAN Player. Um, and this thing is. I don't know. It's it's been around forever, and it it does it all. It's a really great piece mm-hmm. of software. Mm-hmm. Fantastic! Uh, I second that recommendation. It's any machine I get on. That's the, one of the first things I download. Yeah, <laughs> it's also required on Windows now if you want to play DVDs because since Windows ten, you cannot natively play a DVD on Windows for some reason. Oh wow, that is wild. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy. Uh, another one that. Um, you know, a lot of churches figured out to use during the, the lockdown when they wanted to live stream their masses, uh, OBS, Open Broadcaster Software. It's open source live streaming software. Um, it there there are commercial packages out there for this, but this and they have a commercial version. Like, I think there's a, mm-hmm. like OBS, there's an, a version of this where you could pay and you get extra, you get more. But there is a free mm-hmm. open source version of this uh, that runs Windows, Mac and Linux. Um, and and I, I'll, I I swear by this one. This is fantastic. I, any YouTube videos I make, that's what I use. I can almost bet for every single one of them. Uh, but I, that's my my kids too. Like I got them into it because they're like, I want to make YouTube videos, and I'm like, here, here's the software. Go for it. <laughs> right. And it's mm-hmm. professional level software. I mean, it, it'll mm-hmm. it it's you know, it's not like uh, your local TV station level, but it's whatever level next down from that. It will look professional. The, the more you put into it, a uh, piece of software that we use all the time here at StarQuest <laughs> is Audacity. It is a free, open source, cross-platform 
record, you know, we use them mainly to record our, uh, you know, each individual participant records their own audio locally. And that's what we do. But it can also do basic uh, editing as well. I used to use this when I worked on a, on a broadcast radio show at the end of the, we would record the show. And at the end of the show, we'd output it from audacity and put it out as a podcast. You know, I mean, this was, this is a great piece of software. I use it to mix music so you can do mashups where you just grab two pieces of music that are very similar and you can lay them over top of each other. You have the waveforms and you just match them up and then you can cut one out. Cut it. It's like DJing the songs together. It's, it's <laughs> <Right. limitless. laughs> Um And then Caden uh, Live. I don't know that one. Uh, so so this one's this one's great. This is a video editing software similar to Adobe Premiere, um, which is a very high quality video editing software. So if you want to put videos together and chop them up and um, put uh, you know, uh, intros and outros and check the music or add music to the video or whatever. Uh, Caden Live is fantastic for that. So if you're used to the Adobe Premiere style where it's just got kind of like a track bar at the bottom and all of your video stuff laid out on it, uh, Caden Live is the one for that. And then the next one that I have is, is Natron, which is an alternative to that where it's more like After Effects in the way that it works. So it takes the videos and allows you to edit effects onto them. Um, I like Natron. It's the the learning curve is super steep, though, because it's like a graph editor version of things. So it, it, you have to learn how to put nodes together and, and track things back and forth to each other. Very confusing if you don't know what you're doing, but a lot of fun. Mm, interesting. Nice. Like, and this is a good way, a good example of the difference between like op- free open source versus f- free, which is there's a there's like Blackmagic Design, which they make a lot of video hardware. They have a, a program called DaVinci, which is that video editing software. It's free, but it's but they own it. It's commercial, mm-hmm. you know. And so th- that's the difference between it. Whereas you know uh, nobody generally owns like an open source like they do and they don't but you know what i mean it's like it's it's contributed mm-hmm. to by lots of people and so um you know you, you don't you don't have to worry that one company is going to decide well we're done we're we're taking it off the market and you know go find something else to use you know with stuff like this if if the person who controls the project goes away well someone is going to say I'll, i'm forking this project off into a new version i'm going to do it and so you know that's mm-hmm. one of the, the, the nice differences uh, I want to mention Handbrake. This Handbrake is oh, yeah. a, is a great piece of software for, especially if if you've got a whole collection of DVDs that or Blu-rays now, if you have the right hardware, mm-hmm. uh, that you would like to bring into the 21st century and put on something like a like a home media server. Um, it's a ripper. Uh, so it's not a ripper. That's that's I, I misspoke because there's other software for that. It's a mm-hmm. transcoder. It will take yes, the format. <laughs> of the native format that's on the like DVDs were like in VOB format. I think it was the, the VOB and, mm-hmm. and, and translates it into a form that your computer can then play natively, whether it's your PC, you can, tra- you can transcode it for a phone or for a home media library mm-hmm. or whatever. And handbrake is great for that. I've, I've used it for so many projects. Something I like about handbrake, it was, it's actually, I think, the first piece of open source software I ever used because I wanted to put DVDs on my uh, iPod video back in the day. And Handbrake <laughs> is able to do it. And I appreciate that they still have the option to export to the video iPod in their thing. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's I see. It's like uh, these open source projects will often, you know, cater to very small niche audiences. You know, yep. they will they will serve <laughs> your needs. Yeah, that well, is they awesome. have a they have a whole uh, they have a whole command line tool 
utility for handbrake that i use uh and so i have it set up like when i pop a dvd into my plex media server it automatically rips it using ripper software and then uh transcodes it using handbrake into whatever uh style i want and dumps it into it so it just takes care of it for me i don't have to worry about it anymore nice <laughs> nice nice then we have um we go from video editing to uh photo editing and there's some mm-hmm. nice software in that area too uh th- there's the grand old daddy gimp the GNU image manipulation program. This has been around for ages. And these kind of compete with either like Photoshop or Illustrator generally. Mm-hmm. Um, have yeah. either of you guys used GIMP? Love it. I Yeah, it's GIMP is great, but it is very hard to learn. I will say that. So mm-hmm. it's not something you can just jump into. But the good thing is because it's open source, there's a really big community for it and there's tons of resources out there. Yeah. And generally speaking, if you if you learn uh, from if you learn GIMP well enough, if you get started mm-hmm. with GIMP enough, you can watch a video tutorial for uh, Photoshop and do the same thing in GIMP. You just have to know, you know, what the tools translate to. Right, right, right. Once once you understand the, the how the tool works, then the techniques translate pretty readily. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 And then there's Krita. Yeah, so Krita is a really cool art program that is so. Th- so there's a difference between a photo editor and a digital art program. Uh, a photo editor is all about taking an image that exists and manipulating it into something else. Well, where Krita comes in is it's a an open canvas. So there is a, it's what's called an infinite canvas art program, and it's designed with a digital artist in mind. So if you have a kid who likes to do digital art, especially if they have like a bamboo tablet or something like that, uh, this is a great program for them because it it really is built around just getting ideas on the paper like on a blank canvas and um it gives gives you infinite space to scroll so you can zoom way into tiny little details and then zoom way back out to the big picture and and all of that absolutely fantastic my artist daughter loves it she she will go to that before gimp every day of the week (laughs) right nice and uh then then there's another one called inkscape as well and so this one is the, the the third graphics design of things where this is called vector graphics. So this is when you're making designs that you're going to put on a T-shirt or blow up to be on a billboard or use as a logo. Um, so not as much manipulation, but very mathematical. Everything that you put on this one is, uh, you know, designed around shapes and filling in those shapes. Uh, the corollary is, uh, I think Adobe Illustrator is the one that it that it kind of matches back up to right. from the Adobe side of things. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you know the difference between vector illustration and, you know, uh, the art and you'll understand the differences, right? If if you've done any mm-hmm. of this stuff before. Um, and then from there, we go to from the 2D to the 3D, uh, where we have some mm-hmm. 3D modeling, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And uh, so I Blender 3D, I will beat the drum every day of the week for this one. Love this program, uh, 3D design program. It works for 3D design for printing, works for 3D design for art, for videos. My daughter wanted me to point out that it has a very, very nice animation studio built into it just kind of by accident because they do this uh, onion skinning layering thing. So she can draw up to four layers back and forward, seeing uh, what her art's doing. So it's got like an eight layer deep uh, onion skinning. Uh, So she wanted me to mention that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> nice. uh, but yeah, it does. It does a lot. It's a really great, really big program. Very, very steep learning curve on this yeah. one, though. Even does uh, vector, uh, you know, uh, videos, uh, special effects, you, like mm-hmm. like the CGI, yeah, basically. You can, 
right? Yeah, you can do all sorts of stuff in it. It's it's more powerful than I think a lot of people realize. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if some of the big of, of some like movies or TV shows they use some big expensive things. But for some stuff, I wouldn't be surprised to find this on computers at Lucasfilm or you know some of these other places. Weta, you know, for 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 certain particular purposes because it's Absolutely. that powerful. Um, there's a great. We just got a guy that was so good at it that he that yeah. you hired him, and it's like, no, I'm going to keep using this program, darn it. Yeah, <laughs> right. I, I always like to point up people to the Big Buck Bunny uh, animated mm-hmm. movie, which is a great illustration of what it came. It was done by the community, and it is good as mm-hmm. any you know Warner Brothers cartoon. Uh, you know, I show my kids used to watch that over and over again when they were little because it was like, they loved it. I mean, it's, it it's funny and it's well, it's it, the, the technically animation, it's amazing. And it was all this open source community did it. Um, so mm-hmm. from that, and then we have, you know, 3d that we use in games, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So th- this is one that I've moved to, uh, it's the Godot game engine and it's, um, I don't know if it's Godot or Godot, but I I prefer the to, to Frenchify it. I think <laughs> yes, we're waiting uh, but for it. It's a yeah. <laughs> waiting for Godot <laughs> exactly. Uh, um, so it's it is a game engine that's uh, comparable to Unity or Unreal. And to be fair, Unity and Unreal are both free softwares that you can use up to a certain point. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Godot is an open source. Uh, game software so you can contribute to the code for godot you can find the community members you can ask for certain features uh if there are things that are missing that you need for your game that community is very responsive and very good at uh at helping build the tools that are needed to work for anything that's out there i was going to say and if you uh if you learn how to model in blender you can make all your game models in there and then use them Mm -hmm. in your godot game right and that's the thing is it is a game engine so if you if you want to create a game um, and, and game can be any sort of simulation, right? I mean, it doesn't have to be literally a game, but it could be a simulation, simulated world for, you know, I mean, an architect could use something like this to model a building, that sort of thing. So um, it, absolutely, you, you use it for all kinds of things. So uh, so let's go to some other utility type things. So we've talked about uh, open source password managers before we we mentioned keep pass when we were talking about LastPass alternatives so i should mention that how about um there's a oh a great networking utility that's that one of you put down here do you want to take this one jack i know you probably use it oh a wireshark yeah yeah, yeah that's it's a fantastic uh program <laughs> it's basically if you want to map out anything on your network you can use this you can analyze packets you can um, I use it if I need to find out like what suspicious devices are running on the corporate network that we have. Um, mm-hmm. You just turn it on, you can see everything, and it's it's free. It's pretty easy to use, um, and I'm I'm pretty sure every single uh, sysadmin has this in their back pocket, no matter what <laughs> right. level they're at. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> even if you're not, it's a it's a really useful tool. <laughs> yeah, right, <it> <laughs> right. Every everybody who has to run even your home Wi-Fi network, if you've got multiple mm-hmm. people on it, it can be useful. Um, and then for games, having fun, uh, there's a lots of open source <laughs> gaming stuff out there. I, I'm, I'm particularly interested in this first one. I'm, I'm guessing, Thomas, you put this one on there. Multi-MC? Yeah, this, this one's mine. Um, this is absolutely by far and away one of the best little pieces of weird random open source software I've found. It's called MultiMC. Uh, it is a, a Minecraft launcher. So you might think, okay, well, I have a Minecraft launcher. Why don't you? This thing does it all. Like it, I, it, you, you install it. 
you can install Minecraft without having to go download Minecraft from somewhere. You have to have an account still, so you have to like sign into your account. But then if you want to mod Minecraft, you just go in and say, okay, I'm going to go to the AT launcher. I want this particular mod. Boom. It builds the instance for you. You don't have to dump a whole bunch of junk into it. And then if you want to mod it further, you go into the, to the actual instance and just say, I want to add this mod. And you just click a couple of buttons and you download the mod from CurseForge and just drop it right in there. And it, it just works. It's, fantastic i I, oh, nice. I will never go back to another minecraft launcher after this one <laughs> great yeah uh, I, my kids have in the past few months gotten into minecraft so this is timely uh, there you go mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> and, there you go <laughs> and dinner conversations are now peppered with i found ancient relics oh i'm mining di- diamonds i'm like i it's called greek to me now uh <laughs> what else have we got in uh, in the gaming category uh, I put in there a uh, retro arc. Um, it is a fantastic, uh, it's a front end um, for your emulators. Um, and basically what an emulator is, it's a piece of software that it will mimic a Nintendo 64 or a Sega or anything like that. And the nice thing about retro arc is, is that it puts it all in a really nice package for you. And it also lets you download the emulator straight through there. So getting into retro gaming and emulated gaming can be kind of intimidating but with RetroArch, you just download it, you go through, you pick the emulators you want, it installs them, it has like the recommended engines with the recommended settings, and you just point it at your game files and you're good to go. Mm-hmm. Nice, nice. Oh, they have like pretty good one. something called Open Lara, which is a, a recreation of early Tomb Raider games. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They've got that. They've got a Doom nice. one. Uh, yeah, Metroid. It's awesome. That's awesome. So the last one I want to put in here is um, I, I love roguelikes. I, this is like one of my favorite genres of games. So if you don't know what a roguelike is, it's a, a, a game that is infuriating in its simplicity. Uh, everything is randomly generated and you are going to die. Like you are you are going to die many, <laughs> many, many times. The whole purpose of the game is that you as a player get better. Not that your character, I mean, your character does level up and advance throughout the game, but you're supposed to start figuring out strategies and puzzle solve as a player and go through until you finally learn the mechanics of the game. And one of the most frustrating ones that I found that I absolutely love and always return to is called Dungeon Crawl Stone Soup. Uh, it lots of generated options. There's an incredible group on Reddit that's uh, behind that you know that talks about doing runs and how far they've gotten. I still have not beaten this game. I've been playing it for years. <laughs> and and it's one that i'm actually trying to beat as opposed to just i'm playing it until i get bored of it and move on to something else so uh yeah highly recommend this one Uh, a lot of fun really good community behind it too awesome nice i want to mention a few mac specific uh free and open source uh software one is called homebrew and this is a package manager and what this does is you use it in the terminal which is that program that's in the utilities folder inside the applications folder that many people have never opened uh but it's the command line and what it does is is it allows you to install software from the command line with just the the, uh, command brew install and then the name of the of the the software package. And so it's sort of a package for packages. You know, it, it, it go, it, it's software to get other software. And there's a lot of little, little programs that you can get that are really great. One of them is called uh, TLDR uh, too long. Didn't read. And it's a better, well, if you know, if you know anything about command line stuff, you know that the command line commands will have something called a man page or manual. So you type man and then the name of the command, and it will give you an explanation. Well, TLDR is better because it gives you examples of how it would be used. Um, so that's a really nice thing. And the, there's a, a 
you can also they also have packages you can get from other people. So there's this one guy, Smitty Tone Software. He's got ones like Image Prep, which is a uh, image um, uh, optimization program, and PDF Maker, which will make uh, PDFs for you, as the name suggests. Um, all of this op- uh, open source and free. Um, they have. Um, um, I want to skip one I mentioned because it would take too long to explain it. But uh, there's one called I use every single day for every podcast we do called Image Optium. And it does one thing, which is optimize images for the for use on the, online. And mm. it, it basically compresses the image by throwing out unnecessary data. Every image has like metadata and EXIF data, like locations and all kinds of stuff. All that taking a space. I don't need it when I when I'm making um, the podcast cover art, for instance, that all got to go. And I can save. Let's see. Just this week, I've saved 34 percent on all of my, you know, an average of 34%, a third, save a third. And and we're talking about these files can be, these image files can be two, three, four megabytes. And like mm-hmm. YouTube won't let you use a cover image that's more than two megabytes. So, you know, this is great. It's easy to use. I just drop five images on there at once and it just crunches them all. And because I'm on a Intel, uh, not Intel, Silicon Mac, um, it uses all those cores to its full potential. I mean, it really, it, mm-hmm. I mean, I can see my cores ramp up in the, uh, in the, in the, you know, the software. And so uh, it, it's really great. So, and then two more, I talked about last week. So I'll just mention them again, uh, eclectic light software and objective, the objective C foundation. Um, the, these are not open source, but they're free. Eclectic light has a bunch of little utilities that do amazing little things. Um, just go and explore. I'll put the links in the show notes. Um, we mentioned, I mentioned a few last time and the objective C foundation is a 501 C three nonprofit that makes security tools for Macs, And these are, amazing tools like just this and patrick wardle is kind of a legend he's always mm-hmm. speaking at uh the black hat hacker conference every year mm-hmm. um and the these tools are phenomenal i have a, a handful of them running on my mac all my macs all the time um it's really great so just i wanted to mention those again so um how about for windows what are we what kind of uh free and open source can we put on windows that's specific to windows there's a there's there's actually a lot and anything you look at for Linux, there's usually a Windows equivalent. Um, that's the nice mm-hmm. thing about open source software is that the reason our cross platform section is the biggest is because most things are cross platform. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but there's things like Putty, um, which is a SSH client. That's one of the old ones. I think it's I think it's been around for probably at least twenty years now. Um, oh yeah, but that's a really good one. And the one thing I like about it is that. People, whenever I'm talking to people about it and I tell them the name, they're always like, what does that stand for? It doesn't stand for anything. (laughs) They make a point of that. It's just the name they put on it. Yeah. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. So a couple that I use that um, make Windows feel a little bit more like Linux for me (laughs) is I like like Vim. So there's a GVim, which is like a Windows version of Vim. And there's also Git Bash, which is uh, a Git program for Windows that gives a bash scripting feel to anything you do with bash so if you've gotten used to running all the commands on linux and you suddenly go over to windows and you're trying to use this ui and you're like i dude i just i just want to type the thing and upload it please stop making me try to click through stuff uh get bash is a really great one nice actually vim vim could be in the uh, cross-platform category because it's also on the mac so yeah. yeah yeah technically you can get it on all three 
about to say, I can't tell you how many times I type LS into the, uh, command line on windows and it's like what does that mean <laughs> right and windows like nope that's not a command yep. another really good one is notepad plus plus and it's mm-hmm. exactly what it sounds like it's a notepad tool but it's a lot more than that um it gives you all sorts of features that you don't get in the standard notepad um you can even actually just write code in it if you wanted to um but it's great mm-hmm. especially if you're dealing with a lot of like json files or javascript or Anything that's more complex than you just want to jot down a note, it's definitely worth downloading. Nice. Absolutely. I can't tell you how many times that saved my butt just trying to figure out something. And, you know, you try to open it in Notepad and Notepad either crashes because it can't handle the size mm-hmm. of the file or it just it just looks awful because it's just there and there's no, there's not there's no real search feature or anything. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, another two I wanted to mention are a virtual box. It's a, uh, it's another Apache project, mm-hmm. um, product. Um, and it's a uh, virtual, it's for running virtual machines. It's a open source alternative to VMware Hyper-V. Um, it's, it's nice. It's lightweight. Uh, if you want to try out Linux and you're not ready to jump over and you're on windows, it's a great way to get started because you can install a Linux virtual machine and run it on there. Um, and another one that's really good is called bleach bit and it's, essentially an open source alternative to CCleaner, which is one that gets used a lot. It will go through and delete all your metadata and your cached files and stuff like that just to help free up extra space on your computer. Okay. So it's a, it's like a system cleaner software. Right. Yeah. Nice. Mm -hmm. Good. And uh, so what else, anything left (laughs) to talk about? Uh, well, see, this is the problem. Like, if it's on Linux, it's open source. So, you know, I, mean, I, I was like, what is some Linux-specific uh, open source software? So I, I got two. I was like, okay, Vim, which we already talked about. It's like, it's a cross-platform thing. Yeah. But there's one that's that's really like, this one is, and I, I, there's no website for this. It's just a tool that you can download from just about any uh, Linux repository. It's called Conky. And it essentially just puts... Uh, usage statistics on your desktop so you where you have your your desktop background it actually just overlays that with usage statistics from your machine so it just keeps track of like uh disk usage of memory usage of the core uh temperatures so any of the sensors or anything that you have access to inside your machine uh very very good tool i love it i use it all the time uh and i I like because because it just sits there on the background so instead of having to open up a terminal and run the commands that i always forget and have to look up it's just right there Mm, (laughs) nice nice nice. excellent i mean there this is just scratching the surface of that i mean there's so Mm -hmm. much out there we would we could do a whole podcast series forever about it you know and there are actually podcast series that are out there just about open source software. So um, just, you know, consider this a, a dip of the toe into the waters of free and open source um, just to consider some things that are out there. And, you know, I'm sure we'll come back to this again in the future as we find more you know, ones we want to talk about. But if you have any particulars that you're interested in, you want to talk about, you want to ask us about or recommend to others, Feel free to drop us a line, you know, send us an email to technology at sqpn.com or better yet, 
Join our Discord community at sqpn.com slash Discord, where we're having great conversations. I'm learning stuff every day in there, uh, not the least which from uh, Matt the Farmer, who joined us uh, <laughs> a little while ago, who keeps telling us all this amazing tech that farmers use. And I'm like, far- farmers are underappreciated. They're, they have some amazing stuff going on out there. Uh, so, uh, yeah, definitely uh, join us over there in our Discord server and, you know, start a conversation about it. All right, let's move on to uh, first. I want to talk, uh, take a moment to thank our patrons for uh, who make it possible for us to create the secrets of technology, including Michael G, Robert H, Mary S, Jazette S, and Mary H. Their generous donations at sqpn.com/give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of technology and all the shows at Starquest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com/give. Hit the donate button. Make a tax-deductible gift, because we are a 501c3. April 15th is coming up, so I just figured I should mention that. So, <laughs> That's a good spot, yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, let's uh, talk about some headlines. And the first headline is, uh, the, it's it relates to a current event that's kind of, uh, you know, a, a big crime, crime story that people have got, got attention to. But I want to talk about the technology aspects of it. And the headline is, uh, out of the Washington Post, Memphis's sky cop cameras couldn't prevent the Tyree Nichols's beating. Now, the Tyree Nichols was a, a black man who was um, killed by a group of police, and there's a whole um, case going on involving that. And I don't want to talk too much about that. I mean, that's we're not really a crime police po- podcast, but I want to talk about the role of these sky cop cameras uh, that Memphis has installed, and other cities have too, and. They basically, I'm trying to look at the numbers here. I forgot to write down what the numbers were like, but they have uh, 2,100 cameras across the city connected to a command center live streaming video. And these cameras are point tilt zoom. They are very visible. And one of the things that this article talks about is, is there is no, there has not been a drop in crime having installed all these. And in fact, crime has only gone up and there's, you know, you know, then they're paying millions of dollars for this, these systems. And yet, you know, is it worth it? You mean these cops, you know, were standing under one of these cameras in full view and committed this act upon this man. Um, and they have, you know, the, the, pe- the criminals are not being deterred by it. And so this, it's not mm-hmm. a deterrent. This, so the, the critics say, what do you guys think of this? It's a it's a complex topic. I would say that I think the issues rely more with the way the technology is being used than with the technology itself. And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I mean, the the trend is, and we saw this in Britain start years ago, is we are safer with more cameras. Is is sort of the what, what we're told. More cameras mm-hmm. uh, give us more security. On the other hand, we have the civil libertarians who tell us. More cameras mean less freedom, which is also mm-hmm. kind of true. I, I I would be interested to see this, is, and this is a, a statistic that you just you can't get, but it, it would be interesting to see where crime is on the rise with these cameras. How much of it is because we can now see the crime happening rather than just a crime occurred and nobody really knows what happened? And you know, it's like if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around to hear it, doesn't make right. a sound. You know. <laughs> Like, yeah. if the camera's not watching someone commit a crime, does that cause a, a reduction in crime because we just don't know about it? 
Right. I mean, I got the sense from the article that we're talking about crimes that get reported one way or the other, mm-hmm. you know, property uh, theft and people. It's it's not that all these crimes are being caught on camera. It's that the cameras are there, but no, but, but there's still crime being committed in throughout the mm-hmm. city. Um, it's, and it's, there's a lot of back and forth. Like the, the, the proponents are saying, you know, how bad would it be? And, and, you know, it was as, uh, and then the uh, critics will say every bank has had cameras in it forever and people still rob banks. Although still get robbed. bank robbery is a lot less than it used to be, by the way. So it's, it's <laughs> actually not a great example that when you, when you use it. Um, so I, I mean, I, I kind of go back and forth because it might be true it, without these crime might even be worse than it is, mm-hmm. but I just, the That's- idea. That's, yeah, I, that's an impossible yeah. argument to make, though. Right, like, that, right. To me, that's like, you know, that kind of defeats the purpose. Like, you could say that about anything, right? Right. <laughs> right. If I wasn't punching you in the face every day, you might go out and commit a crime. Oh, well, then right. you might as well punch me in the face every day. Uh, the thing that bothers me is, is what do we lose by having this? And, you know, mm-hmm. you he, it's, it, so it's not a deterrent. And so what they do is, is they... They're scanning every license plate of every car. They're watching people, you know, people go about their lives, surveilling them and doing facial recognition and all this stuff on people who are not criminals. And that Mm -hmm. part bothers me a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it bothers me, too, when it when it starts to come to the point where it's used for predictive modeling. Like that's because, you know, that's where it's going. I mean, it's data mining. Like nobody's going to sit on something this expensive and not mine the data right right where they start to say you know in in this neighborhood when these people move from this side of the the neighborhood to that part of the neighborhood this 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 kind of crime occurs you know that Mm -hmm. i mean i'm being vague Mm -hmm. because i don't want to you know i don't want to be too specific but you know what i mean it's like it's looking at seemingly unrelated unrelated behaviors and activity and correlating them with criminal activity and Mm -hmm. then we have a problem yeah it's yeah you end up with a minority report sort of situation, right? right. Where we're like pre-crime. stopping crimes before they happen. Yeah, yeah. pre-crime, <laughs> thought crime. Um, yeah, and one of the th- one of the things that came out of it was uh, also that these systems are in the control of the police, and the mm-hmm. people were saying that in relation to this Tyree Nichols's uh, beating death, uh, is that I think yeah, beating death is that um, because the police controlled the cameras. They were watching the whole time it was happening and not doing doing anything about mm-hmm. it because it was cops involved, and so mm-hmm. maybe there shouldn't be police in charge of these things. Um, so that's a whole nother mm-hmm. question, another layer of accountability and transparency. I mean, it's it's kind of a technology issue, but it's also kind of a public policy issue as well, and that's what makes it even mm-hmm. more complicated. So, um, Something still we we still need to grapple with as as a society, and people need to be engaged with. I think is a is a big part of why I wanted to talk about it. Mm-hmm. So Definitely. let's let's talk about two issues that have come up recently, two big story technology stories uh, that uh, have affected maybe some of the some of us here on the panel. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, at least the first one. Um, so the first headline: uh, the Google Pixel Acropolis, which is hard to say, exploit reverses edited parts of screenshots. Now, Jack, you have a Pixel phone, and I gather this affected you. Can you explain what's going on with this in simple terms? 
So essentially what it is, is when you take a screenshot on your phone, it brings up like that little editor. I think, I think iPhone does that too. And you can like crop it and you can, if you want to like blur something out, you can do that or add text or whatever. And that's fine. But the problem is there's an exploit in the way it functions where you can take, take those pictures and reverse the editing on them. You can uncrop them and you can also erase any of the like blurring or text you've added, which is a big problem. And the issue is it's not just going forward. Like if you've had a pixel phone for years, you could pull up any of your old pictures on from like your old phone that you have in Google cloud and then do the same thing on them, even though they weren't taken with that phone. So it's not just a device specific thing. It's the way the editor is saving that data. And it's obviously still there in the metadata. Otherwise you wouldn't be able to do this. Right. And the reason it's about, it's called, it's a cropping bug is because when the file that you're saving. So you take your original screenshot and if what you save mm-hmm. is smaller, the extra data kind of hangs out at the bottom. <laughs> Just yep. to think of it that way. And it's there to be, to be uh, decrypted and looked at by someone who can do that. And so if people have posted screenshots that include things like their social security number, they put it on Twitter or, you know, or the other private data, that stuff may be vulnerable to being, you know, exposed out on the internet, like not, not even if it's mm-hmm. you, you can delete it from your phone, it's not going to help you because if it's already out there. And now it turns out Windows 11 is also vulnerable to this same thing. Although apparently the, the, the solution there is when you've edited the screenshot or edited the, the image, you, as long as you name it something new, it will dispose of the extra data. So change the file name, basically. Uh. So that's that's the fix on Windows 11. Again, it doesn't help you for old stuff but i do have a fix for pixel 2 which is also which is a a bit roundabout but if you're taking a screenshot of something you zoom into what you need and then you take another screenshot (laughs) right that's actually a good a good uh solution there yeah Mm. yep that works yeah until it's until google gets a patch out to fix it which they haven't yet um yeah. oh actually no i think they have a patch uh now that i uh i know uh, i saw something about there i think sophos was saying that google did get a patch out on that so that that would be good yeah. news scary thing about this one though is that they won't the patch won't help you with the old pictures that's the really right yeah creepy part about this one right like you got to go back go back and find those pictures like if you have them uploaded on your drive or if you, you shared them on reddit or something like that you know yep you gotta you go gotta hunt those down yeah exactly <laughs> Um, so, and then, um, our next story is another, another, uh, big company's <laughs> behaving badly. Uh, actually oh, this brings, fun. this brings up a, a controversy and, and maybe we should talk about a little bit too. So there was this whole thing about Samsung's latest phones. They, uh, and I, I promise you, I'm not, this is not just an Apple fanboy, you know, jumping on all the other Android guys. This is, these, these are real issues. Uh, Samsung's latest phones had this moonshot feature where you could, if you, they promised that if you took a, a picture of the moon with your phone, it would, it would use computational photography to improve it and make it look really nice. Because if you've ever tried to take a picture with your phone before, you know that the, it blows out the image and it's all like just a, a white dot in the middle of a black screen. I mean, that's just how it, it, it taking a, a, a moon photo is a very actually technically difficult thing unless you know what you're doing. Um, and mm-hmm. so, it's like, oh, great. So people have been taking their, these photos of the moon. Well, this one guy decided to test it. And what he did was he took a, an image of the moon, intentionally blurred it so there was no detail to 
unblur and then put it up on his computer screen and took a picture of that with his Samsung phone. So there was no detail that they could like, there was no raw data in the image to, 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 to get back. And then he gets this beautiful, perfect photo of the moon. And it turns out they're either, they're doing a, one of a few different things. Perhaps they're either like, generating an image of the moon like sort of a ai generation of the moon based on what we know the moon to look like from the photo um mm-hmm. or some people speculated they're just taking photos of the moon and overlaying it because there's only di- so many different angles of the moon you could you could have a shot right. from um but that that brings up the questions computational photography is not is is manipulation of these images automatically by the phone. So how far is too far? What do you guys think? So the funny thing about this one, um, with uh, with the way he did it, he also did another test where he drew like a smiley face on the blurred picture of the moon. And he took a picture of that and it made it look really nice. But there was like this cratered textured smiley face on the moon. So I think it's doing the first thing where it's doing some overlaying and basically it knows what the moon looks like. So it makes that look like the moon. I don't think it's like pasting a fake picture of the moon on there. Okay. Um, but yeah, and this is a really egregious example of how this technology works, but this is what all phones do more or less. If you're taking mm-hmm. pictures with your, uh, your phone, you're doing the portrait mode or the, the lighting mode. It's all computational photography. It's taking pictures that are pretty good and then it's doing a bunch of things in the background computationally to make them look really good. And I mm-hmm. guess the philosophical question there is at what point are these real pictures and at what point is it just an AI using your photo as a seed to give you something really nice? I've had some acrimonious debates with my wife <laughs> over the, we've decided that we're not going to talk about this anymore about AI Im- imagery, these AI image generators, mid journey, D- Dolly and that sort of stuff. Um, and whether that constitutes art, whether it, and and I I keep going back to well computational photography. If you take a picture with your phone, is that art? And you know how is that different than giving a prompt to a a car- carefully articulated prompt to these AI art generators? And and that's that's the question: is how far removed from the end product are we still the artists? And you, you know there are there are artists out there who never pick up a brush and never you know wield a chisel, but who to, you know, uh, hire a team of skilled workers to create an artwork from their vision. Are they, are they artists? Some people say, no, is a movie director an artist then? These are complex questions. And it, and it, and it applies in this because are you take, is that a, is that a photo that you've taken or is it a construction by an AI based on some data it's gathered through an image sensor? Uh, <laughs> yeah, and it's it's interesting because I feel like this used to be more of an invisible kind of thing. Like it would just adjust the lighting or, you know, fix some contrast issues and stuff like the same kind of stuff that you could always do manually with photos. It would just do it for you. But now you get things like the magic eraser on the pixel phones where mm-hmm. you can delete stuff in the background. And uh, Liz and I have actually had that same kind of conversation where I think it's nice. Like if I want to take a picture of my kids on the beach and get rid of the people in the background. That's great. It's our photo. And she's like, you can't erase people from photos. It's erasing them from reality. <laughs> no, no. If I could erase people from reality, I would actually be doing that, but I can't. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's just like we have this manipulated reality. And yeah, I yeah. guess that just goes back to 
photography in general, you are manipulating reality to make it look like mm-hmm. what you want. So right. if the computer's yeah. doing it, is that okay? I mean, let's be honest. Like I, I took uh, photography classes when I was in high school and college and you, you got a picture that was light coming through your camera and hitting uh, a film because I was still doing film. I wasn't doing digital photography, but I would take that film and then to process it, I would do all sorts of things to it to make mm-hmm. certain colors pop out or to make uh, the background blurry to do like a bouquet where there was a blurry background, blurry foreground, but concentrated middle, you know, like all of these things are tricks that artists have been doing for every few read Ansel Adams book. It's about getting a great photograph, but it's also about, uh, you know, uh, developing a great photograph using a lot of these these right. strategies so we've been doing it forever like is this different than is this different than a tool is it a tool that's different than what we've been doing or is it something that's really cheating like that's that's where my uh i get really blurry on this one because i, I feel like eh, it's <laughs> i know that i know they're doing it i, I know that's what's happening right in general blurry on it you should use some uh Computational photography, <laughs> sharpen it up. <laughs> Maybe do it. There you go. I mean, the fact that just even <laughs> cropping a photo is altering the reality that the photo took, right? I mean, by by not mm-hmm. including the whole frame, by cropping it or whatever, it's still altering the reality. I mean, there's there's a line, but it, it's hard to define. You know, the I I kind of feel mm-hmm. like the Samsung thing. I, I think they innocently crossed the line. I don't think they were necessarily intending to be deceptive. I think they just probably saw this as the next evolution of it. What you want is an image of the moon that you saw that night. We'll give it to you. It, mm-hmm. it's, it's not going to be exactly as it came, but they know that the, all the images that you see, uh, you know, on the, on the phone are not exactly as they came to the image sensor because that, that would be nonsensical. You, you wouldn't be able to, it, all of that data is, is just data until they assemble it in a you know particular way. So mm-hmm. I can see from the engineer's point of view, yeah, sure. That's this is this is the same sort of thing. Look at this is awesome. We could do this. I can just picture the, the meeting, except in Korean, right? But you know, the, <laughs> but for the regular person, it's like we for most people we don't realize that there's a difference, and so we're like, wait, that's too far. So yeah, I I, I kind of feel like this is more of a public perception marketing problem than it is a technological issue. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I agree. There's also a hard limit to how much light you can collect with those tiny little phone sensors, no matter how many megapixels it has, unless Mm -hmm. basically if you want to take real good photos and not cheat, you need to get a DSLR and learn how to actually use it. Otherwise I'm honestly okay with my phone doing the legwork for me. Right. 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 And if you want mo- just, good moonshots, let's do what it's doing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you want good moonshots, you need a, a nice long lens. You need the, all that sort of stuff. Right. Um, or a telescope. Um, you, you, I mean, it, and part of it is our, our faulty expectations. We have, expe- mm-hmm. we expect these miracle devices in our pockets to do even more miracles. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and then we get mad when we find out that, there's a whiz, you know. There's a little That's man behind the yeah, behind the the curtain manipulating yep. it. Yeah. So, um, all right. So I'm sure this is not the last we will hear of these these, these questions. And in fact, I I, lo- I really enjoy the conversation and the, the 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 debate over what's the line. Is it art? 
you know, the t- technology's involvement in this sort of creativity. Uh, so I would love to come back to this again in the future. But for now, let us uh, move on to talk about our picks of the week as they uh, change as we're looking at them on the in the. <laughs> oh, sorry about that. <laughs> no, I, know, I'm just I was like, you know what? I'm going to put this thing in. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. You weren't going first anyway. I'm making Jack go first. So, Jack, what's your pick this week? My pick of the week is a this uh, small piece of free software. It is actually also open source, so kind of ties into yeah. the theme. It's called a Belina Etcher, and it is a fantastic simple tool for flashing bootable uh, ISOs or mm-hmm. image files um, to uh, thumb drives or to SD cards. Um, I've actually used it a lot with uh, like those retro handheld gaming devices. For some reason, Windows doesn't really have a good utility for managing formatting on external devices. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one's really great. You can you just put it on there. It cr- Drop in your image file. It burns it to the thumb drive or to the SD card, and you're good to go. I've not had any issues with it at all. And it really simplifies that process because there's a lot of roundabout ways to do it, but this is just quick and easy. It's free. Um, it's open source also. So there you go. And I think it's come up in the show before as a way to like put Linux on a thumb drive and boot your computer off it along with some right. some utilities and that sort mm-hmm. of stuff. So cool. Excellent. Um, all right. And Thomas, what's your pick this week? So I got this really nifty screwdriver set <laughs> that uh, that I wanted to to highlight because um, I'm, I'm a tech nerd. I'm I'm an electro geek. I keep a lot of junk I probably shouldn't. <laughs> and we recently cleaned out my garage and I have space and now the space is occupied by my electronic stuff. So I'm actually breaking it down at this point. But I find that I need all sorts of random weird uh, driver bits to to do stuff. And so this is uh, an, a precision screwdriver set that's got 130 different heads to it. And they're they're not big. So you're not getting like you're not going to get a, a really good solid everyday screwdriver out of this but what you're going to get is like all of those little like triangular uh heads or the the star shaped ones that you know it's on the back of a of a of a nintendo switch you know there's like a couple of different little like tri pieces that you can't get at with a regular screwdriver that's what this guy's for and so it's a, a magnetic uh screwdriver set that has 130 different heads in it that you can use for all sorts of different things and also has a lot of little uh, tight space uh, mechanisms that you can add to it so if you're trying to get inside of electronics you can just snap it into the front and get into those little hard to reach spots it's been a lifesaver it's been fantastic (laughs) yeah i have a kit like this from uh um i fix it that I just use all the time and I use it not just for computer stuff. Like you said, like I, mm-hmm. I fix my wife's gla- you know, glasses with it, you know, anything that has tiny little screws th- this is perfect. This sort of thing is perfect. And it, it's inexpensive. It's only 30 bucks. So yeah, this one was, I, I was surprised. Like I got it and I was like, okay, I'm going to spend 30 bucks on it because I <laughs> don't want to spend too much. Uh, and it's, it's been really good quality. Yeah. Nice. Awesome. Cool. So my pick this week is a cable, not just any cable. This was a kind of a, a nice little cable. It's a uh, USB uh, A to USB C cable. That the one thing that makes it unique is it has a power LED at one end, so that when it's plugged in and it's powered, so it's plugged in at both ends, <laughs> it glows green, so that you know that. Could you ever like like plug in your phone? 
and you you know waiting for it to charge like overnight, and then you realize the other end was not, was unplugged. Oh, drives <laughs> yes. you crazy. So this this is a five pack of these cables for twelve dollars. So pretty good deal, and they're braided cables, uh, and they'll just they glow green when they're plugged in. And that's that's the primary benefit to, to these. So it's a nice way. I, I have it where all the kids plug their stuff in because I I, just, I was tired of hearing them go, oh, no, it's screen time and my thing is uncharged, <laughs> even though it was plugged in. Is it plugged in on the other end? Yeah. So uh, <laughs> add to cart quick. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, man. Yeah. Like these. And because and it's a five pack because a I have five kids, but B. You go through them like yeah, any parent knows how fast you go through these cables <laughs> on a regular basis. So that's mine. It's a uh, USB-C fast charging. So it'll it'll it, it's uh, rated to do the uh, higher power levels to charge faster. So uh, that's really nice. great. All right. So that should do it for this time. We would love to get your feedback on anything we talked about tonight. Uh, you can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash technology or the StarQuest Facebook page, facebook.com slash StarQuest Media. Send an email to technology at sqpn.com or visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord all of links from our discussion for everything we talked about and our picks of the week in our show notes at starquest.fm slash tec204 that's tech 204 uh, if you can we would really appreciate it. it really helps us out a lot when you write a review of the show in apple Podcasts or wherever you can write po- uh, reviews of podcasts share the podcast with your friends help us grow our community reach more listeners and frankly i think we do a service for the community out there helping explain technology in uh, ways that really are helpful to people uh, we'd like to thank james for research assistance on this episode and until next time Thomas and Herho, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of technology. It's been a pleasure. Jack Barazzini, thank you as well. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of technology on StarQuest. <laughs>